This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein. Our cities are changing. Around the world, more and more money is being invested in buildings and land. Real estate is now a $217 trillion industry, worth 36 times the value of all the gold ever mined. It forms 60% of global assets, and one of the most powerful people in the world, the President of the United States, made his name as a landlord and developer. Samuel Stein shows that this explosive transformation of urban life and politics has been driven not only by the tastes of wealthy newcomers, but by the state-driven process of urban planning. Planning agencies provide a unique window into the way the state uses and is used by capital, and the means by which urban renovations are translated into rising real estate values and rising rents. Capital City explains the role of planners in the real estate state, as well as the remarkable power of planning to reclaim urban life. Also, if you're in New England, come see me interview Stein live in Providence, April 23rd, 7 p.m. at Riff Raff Books. Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. The scope of Yemen's humanitarian disaster is breathtaking. 10 million people are on the brink of famine, and nearly a quarter million are at catastrophic levels of food insecurity. This is a rather obvious insight, but it's worth emphasizing that war creates the socioeconomic conditions that are precisely the opposite of everything that we as socialists are fighting for. The U.S., of course, has played a major role in fomenting this bloodshed, backing the Saudi and United Arab Emirates-led forces attacking the country while also conducting its own direct war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula under the guise of counterterrorism. The carnage has been big business for U.S. capitalists, too. Silicon Valley is loaded with Saudi cash. Indeed, the kingdom is the single largest source of funding for American startups. Meanwhile, Lockheed Martin sales in Saudi Arabia for 2019 and 2020 reportedly total about $900 million. The war was for most Americans, until quite recently, at best an afterthought. Yet suddenly, American elites cared about the carnage in Yemen, and, thankfully, As a result, there has been a powerful bipartisan move in Congress to stop U.S. involvement in the war, legislation that President Trump vetoed just yesterday after these interviews had been recorded. That this shift has taken place at all is what's most important. 
but it's hard to escape the very depressing conclusion that it was only after Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman went so far as to murder a U.S.-based journalist who the Washington establishment considered to be one of its own that this establishment decided that they'd had enough. The media suddenly cared about Saudi Arabia and, by extension, Yemen, because one of their own was killed, and I think also because it seemed as though Trump, who many in the liberal establishment believe is the alpha and omega of everything bad in this country, was complicit in the killing. U.S. support for the war in Yemen began under Obama, but it was only this murder in the context of the Trump connection and Jared Kushner's bromance with the Saudi and Emirati crown princes that prompted establishment liberals in the U.S. to finally take notice. In a July 2018 piece for the left media watchdog FAIR, Adam Johnson reported that MSNBC had gone an entire year without a segment mentioning U.S. support for the Saudi-led war. That's one entire year of nonstop liberal outrage that couldn't find the time for a single segment on the U.S. military's outrageous, destructive, and murderous conduct in Yemen. The carnage in Yemen, it turns out, didn't interest many liberal elites until it fit into mainstream U.S. liberal resistance politics vis-a-vis Trump. This is one of many reasons why it's up to the left to make advancing a heterodox and anti-imperialist foreign policy a core priority as we fight our way into power. And it's worth noting that it has been Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Ro Khanna in the House who have taken the lead in fighting against U.S. participation in this war. But while it's understandable, of course, that U.S. involvement is the top focus for the American left, understanding the war in Yemen requires a much broader analysis. The Yemeni conflict not only includes multiple outside actors, but also multiple groups of Yemenis pursuing different outcomes, rooted in a complex history that few outside of Yemen understand. Explaining that context is what today's show, in partnership with the Middle East Research and Information Project, or MARIP, is all about. Today, we have two interviews with contributors to the latest issue of Middle East Report, MARIP's print publication. First up is Yemeni journalist Afra Nasser and political scientist Stacey Philbrick Yadav. And then I speak with political economist Adam Hania. The latest issue of Middle East Report is The Fight for Yemen, and you can find it at merip.org. That's M-E-R-I-P dot org. And I strongly recommend that you subscribe. There's no better place for English-language left-wing analysis of the Middle East. Merip has been providing a critical and independent left analysis of the region's politics and U.S. foreign policy in the region for 45 years. A subscription gets you access to the full archive, plus upcoming issues about new forms of intervention in the region, new critical analysis of Israel's occupation and colonization of Palestinian land, and a special series of articles on what a left foreign policy in the Middle East would look like as we see more progressives in public office. And, for what it's worth, I've been a fan of Merip since I was an intern there years ago as a college student. Anyhow, before we get rolling, and I'll keep this pitch for your cash short, 
We depend on those of you who can afford to support this podcast at patreon.com to do so, so that we can provide every single episode for free for the listeners all over the world who can't afford to contribute. And I do mean all over the world. We, unsurprisingly, have a ton of listeners in the UK and the rest of the Anglophone world. We also, however, appear to have a decent if smaller number of listeners in Japan, Mexico, South Africa, India, Brazil, and even, looking at the stats, one or a handful of listeners inside Yemen. Anyhow, if you contribute, we have a newsletter, we have left-wing books to send you. Contribute what you can now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And one other note, I've decided to formalize the role played by my partner, Theo Riofrancos, here at The Dig. She's a brilliant political scientist, a dedicated eco-socialist, and has, since the beginning, been the person who is most frequently and constantly helping me figure out who to invite on the show, editing my introductions, questions, and newsletters, and just generally being trapped in a radical mind meld with me as part of a mutual quest for the perfect analysis. So you'll be hearing Thea credited from now on at the end of the show as The Dig's managing editor. If you like what we do here on The Dig, you'll like what Thea does too. You can check her out on Twitter at Triofrancos. That's T-R-I-O-F-R-A-N-C-O-S. Okay, that's that. Here's Afra Nasser and Stacey Philbrick-Yadav. Nasser is an independent Yemeni journalist, editor-in-chief of the Sana Review, and the recipient of the Committee to Protect Journalists 2017 International Press Freedom Award. Her latest piece in Middle East Report is entitled Yemen's Women Confront War's Marginalization. Stacy Philbrick-Yadav is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges who co-edited and contributed to Middle East Report's latest issue, The Fight for Yemen. Afra Nasser and Stacy Philbrick-Yadav, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to set up this broader discussion we're going to have and start by having you both explain where the conflict stands now. Which forces control what regions? What is the state of the fight on the ground across the various front lines? And critically, what sort of conditions are you many people in different parts of the country experiencing? I think one of the things that's most significant about the war is the extent of fragmentation. And that fragmentation has material elements to it, territorial elements, and of course, I think the effects of social fragmentation. So where things stand right now, the Houthi forces and Houthi-aligned forces extend outside of the kind of uh, heartland of the north where they originated, um, but don't extend into significant sections of the south, which are conventionally called government-aligned or uh, government-controlled territories. That's, of course, also an oversimplification because there are some major differences on the ground in different communities of the South. Um, the port city of Hodeida has been a focus of major contestation over the past year, especially throughout the war, but it is nominally still in under Houthi control, but essentially surrounded by coalition-aligned forces. Afra? 
I would add to what Stacey just mentioned that you have multi fronts fighting going on at the same time. So it's not only the fight between the Yemeni government and uh, the Houthi rebels, but also you have um, on on one hand you have Al Qaeda uh, who who are benefiting actually from the the extreme lack of uh, governance and the uh, you know the fighting between uh, the government and Houthi. So they're quite. For sometimes they were very active in Hadramaut and in some kind of strange deal uh, with uh, the Saudi and Emirati forces. Uh, they give away uh, their power in Hadramaut. But in other parts, in Al-Bayda and Hajja, um, they're still uh, taking control uh, of some uh, places. And also uh, the U.S. The U.S. administration has been active in fighting or in operating uh, some of the attacks against the Al-Qaeda forces in the course of uh, the ongoing conflict. And then uh, you have also another front from uh, Shabwa that is fighting also the Saudi forces and Shabwa local Yemeni forces having a power struggle over their territory. It's a very multi-facet fighting going on. So it's hard to um, just limit the conflict in Yemen uh, with focusing on on the Houthi and the Saudi-led coalition with, you know, an alliance with the Yemeni government. It's more and bigger than that. I absolutely agree with that. And if I could just add something about the... um the way the war itself has been kind of transforming some of these actors as well. I think it's hard to do this without a map, honestly. But yeah. um, the, in the province of Hadramaut, as Afra mentioned, Al-Qaeda was essentially governing from 2015 to 2016, around April 2016, when the United States and the United Arab Emirates launched a coordinated campaign there. And, and from the United States perspective, there was an announcement that there had been kind of a victory or a defeat of al Qaeda, but uh, it's very clear that force it, that their fighters have relocated and aligned with other local militias, that some of which are aligned with the so-called coalition. It's also clear that the coalition itself is internally fragmented, and there are some um, they're backing different local groups. Uh, and so, one thing that we didn't mention, I think, is the Southern Secessionist Movement, yes. Uh, yes. which is really significant and important. It's technically referred to as being part of the government-controlled territory, but the Southern Transitional Council has effectively declared uh, its own independence, and that's been supported by the United Arab Emirates, but rejected by the Saudis. So it's certainly the case, as Afra suggested, that this is a multi-actor conflict, and we talk about it as if it is a two-party conflict between the Houthis and the government, and that's completely unrealistic. Um, and what about the living conditions, the conditions that you many people in various parts of the country are experiencing right now? It's breathtaking in its scope and I think generational in the kind of legacies that this war will leave. But to give you some sense of the context, uh, 9.6 million Yemenis are today experiencing a phase four food emergency, which is one step away from famine. 
there's been a 13% increase in food insecurity just in the last two quarters since the Stockholm Agreement was reached in December. So the peace process, which I'm sure you'll have some questions about, but the peace process is not able to keep pace with the humanitarian deterioration. And the restrictions on movement, there's restrictions on the movement of people and on the movement of goods. The restrictions um, that the coalition in particular is able to enforce means that we're not seeing a refugee crisis from Yemen like we would expect to see in the face of this kind of humanitarian collapse, but instead a crisis of internal displacement. So over the course of the war, 4.3 million internally displaced people in Yemen since 2015, about 3.3 million are still displaced and many of them are sheltering in schools, which also helps to, to clarify why um, about half of Yemeni school school-aged children are not currently in school or schools are not functioning. And the health frame, of course, the cholera epidemic, which was an entirely preventable epidemic, um, there have been more than a million documented cases, uh, and 19.7 million Yemenis are in need of health assistance. About half of health facilities are not functioning. One thing that I like to point out to people who are not terribly familiar with Yemen is that it's still a predominantly rural country, which is out of sync with the rest of the region. And it means that in many ways, a lot of the fighting is happening in, in the central urban centers. And so the, the real risk to people is not always from coalition airstrikes or Houthi mortars, but from uh, deprivation and, and um, the restrictions on access and restrictions on goods that come with the, the fragmentation of the territory. Yeah, and if I could add to what you just said, uh... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a long list of the horrific plight for uh, millions of Yemenis, but it's very important to stress on the fact that this is a man-made uh, humanitarian uh, crisis. So on one hand, you have the restrictions uh, from both the Saudi-led coalition and Houthi rebels blocking uh, aid to, you know, the, the places that they are uh, uh, controlling. Many times we've heard of reports come out of uh, wheat uh, storage being blocked or denied access for UN staff to go and, and take them uh, to the pe people in need. So food is being used as a weapon of war. In Taiz, for example, uh, the Houthis have blocked access to Taiz uh, basically since the start of the, uh, the war. And it's uh, on and off. And could you just point out where, where, Taz, where Taz is? Taz is the third biggest or highly populated uh, uh, city in Yemen. Uh, and it's located toward the, the south of Sana'a. And the Houthis have had control uh, or, you know, they, they, they took control of Taz since the start of uh, the Saudi-led coalition in, in 2015. And for many reasons, the Saudi-led coalition uh, has not liberated, quote-unquote, as they did to uh, liberating uh, Aden. So Taz is still under siege and Houthis have really uh, manipulated or have really taken advantage of blocking food and trying to force the uh, forces or the resistance forces inside Taz to give up their power through, you know, through the military uh, fighting and also through using uh, uh, food as a weapon of war. 
And then the yeah. other, the other very important. Uh, sorry, Stacy, just to, okay. to mention also, and maybe you can elaborate on that as well. Uh, the fact that the Yemeni uh, central bank has been moved from Sana'a, the capital, by a, a decision of uh, the president uh, Hadi, it was moved one year after uh, the war started in 2016, and ever since, millions of civil servants have not been paid their uh, salaries. And that really had played a huge role in how people are not affording to buy food. And that also was a very, very devastating tactic from President Hadi trying to force the other side to submit. So every side is trying to play and use basically people's income or access to food just to force uh, or to use it as a political uh, pressure on the other side. Right, absolutely. Um, I think that this instrumentalization of hunger is exactly as Afra said, it's at the intersection of the issue of salaries and the issue of circulation. So what I mean by that is that the, the food food is coming into the country, humanitarian assistance is coming into the country, and it is actually also circulating in the country through, but it has to pass through checkpoints, right? It has to pass through um, the militias themselves, which are essentially taxing the transit of these goods so that by the time they reach markets, they're priced well above what anyone would expect, typically, and far far above what anyone can pay. And so I think the the hunger crisis couldn't possibly be more man-made. But if we look at the moving of the central bank, this has meant the collapse in particular of civil servants' salaries. And we can think of it in terms of the, the civil servants themselves, but if you factor in the households that those civil servants support, the estimates are in excess of 8 million people who've lost their source of income uh, since the central bank was moved in 2016. A lot of Yemenis try to compare the situation to the conflict in Syria, and they uh, make the argument that uh, even uh, you know, the dictator Bashar al-Assad uh, still pays salaries to his own sir, uh, civil servants but our president is is uh, forcing or uh, trying to uh, pressure us to submit and not letting uh, our salaries uh, uh, being paid. So people are really, really devastated by uh, the uh, lack of uh, salaries. Um, recently, there have been uh, some efforts from the newly appointed uh, prime minister. So there are some let's say thousands being paid, but still it's in a very chaos and not, uh, uh, you know, not, things are not completely back to normal. But every once in a while, uh, you can see that the humanitarian situation getting really, really bad. And it's mainly because people are not affording uh, the food. The food is there, but people are not affording. And just a quick clarification, the the president is Abdurabo Mansour Hadi. Who is backed by the Gulf Coalition. Yeah, and internationally uh, recognized still. I think the roots of this conflict are mostly invisible to or misunderstood by many outside of Yemen. Explain the historical trajectory that made the conflict what it is today. How, How it started as an Arab Spring uprising against President Ali Abdullah Saleh, moved on to Saleh's Gulf Cooperation Council's brokered exit as part of a settlement that excluded both the northern Houthis and the southern Hirak, and then 
descended into fragmentation, the Houthis' military pushed south, a multi-party civil war, and the U.S.-backed Saudi and UAE intervention, all set against the backdrop of the United States' overwhelming obsession with battling al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and AQAP's own ambitions in the Hadramaut region. There's a lot here, but explain how we get from 2011 to today. I mean, I think from my perspective, the the participation, Yemeni participation in the Arab Spring uprisings, I mean, I think of the Yemeni uprising as entirely making sense in the context of the existing grievances that Yemenis had with their government uh, in all that had already taken lots of different forms before 2011. But the the scope, the enthusiasm, and quite frankly, the sense of possibility that was afforded by developments that were happening elsewhere in the region, I think really uh, propelled the youth movement in particular. There was an 11-month uprising in Yemen, and that was not only characterized by peaceful youth protesters um, in in various protest squares around the country. It was also characterized by the fragmentation of the Yemeni military and the mobilization of a wide range of armed groups. And external actors looked at that as a perilous kind of road to instability, I think, and brokered an agreement that was designed to to damp to tamp down um, the volatility. So it was packaged for public consumption as a transition to democracy, but there's nothing about the design features of the Gulf Cooperation Council initiative that actually corresponds to that. You don't, quite frankly, put the unelected monarchies of the Gulf, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the six wealthy northern Gulf neighbors of of Yemen in charge of a transition to democracy. But the United States and the EU also signed on to this framework, and it was designed to get Ali Abdullah to leave office more or less peacefully. I think it was somewhat less peacefully by the end, uh, but he did sign. And in doing so, they they created a power-sharing government with elements of the, what I'm going to call the old opposition, the existing opposition parties, and members of the former ruling party but really excluded the groups that mattered a lot on the ground. And that included youth protesters themselves as who were unaligned with particular political factions, as well as the Houthis who had a longstanding uh, set of grievances and had fought actually armed campaigns against, against the Saleh regime, uh, as well as a secessionist movement in the South, a movement that didn't necessarily start out as secessionist, but had become progressively so by 2011. So these groups were left out of the power-sharing cabinet. They were invited to participate in a big national dialogue conference, and I think that that was an effort at inclusivity. But at the same time, in practice, that National Dialogue Conference was a lumbering process without much by way of effective implementation mechanisms. So you were effectively saying to these groups, come and tell us what your grievances are, and we'll see whether or not the government does anything about them. That, to me, was a recipe for disaster when they were then sent back um, out of the National Dialogue to await some future changes or reforms. Yeah, Uh, I, I would add that from my perspective as someone who was active during the uprising and who really believed in the uprising one of the, like the main two main reasons why 
things went in this, you know, dramatic, horrible uh, uh, track. The local aspect of it, you cannot give a dictator or someone who ruled for more than 30 years, you cannot give them impunity and let them go and, in the, you know, in the hope that they will quit politics. So Saleh quit power, but he did not quit politics. And later on, he had an alliance with the Houthis to take revenge, actually, from those who ousted him. So that is one aspect. And then the regional one, we really believe we, uh, you know, the, 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 the youth who were active in the uprising, that the Gulf monarchies, like Yemen problem is that it's surrounded by an absolute monarchies. And as if they, they will make anything uh, just to make sure that there is no, uh, you know, a, a democracy uh, next door. So they had to take control of how uh, things are going to develop, and they they invested everything they have from their leverage regionally, internationally. And even this war is still as a way to take Yemen still under their hegemony. We really believe our problem is that we're in that spot in the region. I don't see how we can have the democracy in Yemen that we want while we're uh, still surrounded by monarchies and, and, and tyrant uh, regimes, such as the one that we're seeing under the, the, the rule of uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And what about the United States' conflict with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? What role is that playing? I mean, the longstanding comment on this has been that, you know, in the 2000s, especially, the United States didn't have a Yemen policy. We had a Saudi Arabia policy. And that the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia had largely dictated policy towards Yemen, except where it came uh, to counterterrorism operations. And so our focus, uh, the disproportionate bulk of the aid and assistance that the United States gave to Yemen, which has never been so tremendous, but grew during that time, was directed towards counterterrorism work. Um, and it was actually really recognized in congressional testimony as early as 2010, that a lot of that aid was being used not to suppress or surveil al-Qaeda, but to suppress and surveil the domestic opposition. And that was sort of a bargain that the United States was okay with. During the transitional period, when there was all this volatility and President Hadi was tasked with, you know, developing some local legitimacy, we actually accelerated the use of drone strikes to their, their peak occurred during the transitional period. So the kind of climate of insecurity on the ground meant that al-Qaeda was thriving in some parts of Yemen. And at the same time, the instruments that the United States was using to combat that were undermining the legitimacy of a government that was tasked with providing security and stability. And to clarify, this is the Obama administration's policy toward Yemen? Yes, yeah. I, there have been changes uh, under Trump. They're not for the better. But I want to be completely clear that the problems with U.S. policy in Yemen did not originate with President Trump. What about the political economic context to this political history we've been talking about? Is this just ethnic and religious differences or are there economic interests driving the various parties? And to what degree is the conflict one that does not have sectarian roots but that has become more sectarian because of the dynamic that the conflict has developed. 
I think it's a mix of all the, the things that you mentioned. There are economic uh, and, and political and sectarian and uh, cultural differences that, you know, are boiling. And uh, the, mo- the longer the war rage, the, the, the more sectarian, unfortunately, it gets. And it's true that before the war, we did not have, like, for me growing up in Sana'a, our neighbors were coming from Sa'ada, and they were like, you know, Houthi, or at least they know about the Houthi uh, family, but they come from Sa'ada, and in today's terminologies, they were Shia. They're not Shia, uh, similar to the ones in Iran, but it's a, a different school in uh, Shiaism. And we were like Zaidi, and that was never even a question. We never really had any mosque for uh, uh, the Shia and Zaydis. It was still all under, you know, that we're all Muslims, we're all Sunnah, and it did not matter uh, at all. But today, things are extremely different. My mother, who's in Sana'a, when she speaks to me on the phone about how things are going, she tries to avoid speaking uh, or talking about the sectarian aspect because she uh, she is terrified. She tells me that we're being taped, and I know that they are listening to my uh, calls, and meaning that the Houthis. But all the photos that you can see today, and there are m- many, many reports coming from people on social media, uh, on the ground, uh, how the mosques are changing, how the the style of prayers are changing, and how even imams in mosques are forced to lecture uh, based on the uh, thoughts of uh, the Houthi's godfather, Badr al-Houthi. So things are are just changing and the longer the war go on the 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 more you know uh, sectarian changes will happen and um just recently for example there were reports that the houthis are uh, going to ban women from traveling inside their controlled areas without the um mahrim which is like a male guardianship and that's one way of their conservatism that did not exist before in in Sana'a, which was regarded even at that time as a conservative society. So there is a huge uh, religious and sectarian uh, stain in uh, life under the Houthi uh, control area. But it's also very important to talk about the South one of the you know the the greatest thing uh, about the south i think the one of the most remarkable thing is that the first marxist political party in the arab region was established in the south during uh, the 60s and and 70s and it f- faded uh, uh, along the way but it was a very quote unquote liberal kind of place but today things are changing as well and Salafi tendency is spreading in many uh, places and with the help of militias funded by the Saudi Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates. There are uh, a a, a semi-religious police trying to force, for example, women to cover their hair or not show a lot of skin and and so on. So uh, in both areas, uh, there are uh, changes changes happening because of this uh, sectarian aspect of the war. 
And so for me, I think I, I always situate that in a longer uh, political and institutional story. And there's a, a, actually a common missing ingredient in both that northern and the southern story, and that's the role of Hezbollah Islah. So uh, the Islah party, uh, which is the subject of my research for a long time and, and for most of the time that I was in Yemen, is an Islamist party that has really different internal factions within it. But in the far northern part of the country, before the Islah Party ever was the Islah Party, the Saudis financed a series of what are called uh, tertiary, or they're tertiary schools, but they're called scientific institutes locally. And they were um, these kind of religious schools for Salafi Muslims who, at that point, again, there wasn't an Islah Party to join, but these people would eventually go on to join the Islah Party, and, or many of them would. And these institutes were preaching a kind of evangelical uh, Salafi Sunnism that was disruptive to the kind of uh, cultural traditions in the far north. And it actually made some inroads in sort of recruiting converts, I, that that analogy or that, that use of term doesn't fit very well, but a, attracting people who had been born and raised in Zaidi families of a kind of lower status, using a kind of um, a evangelical message based on an egalitarian Salafi doctrine that offered them some greater social mobility. So they made some progress in the North and that was seen as kind of a cultural onslaught. And members of the Zaidi community appealed to the Yemeni government at the time to limit the autonomy of these preaching institutes basically uh, for cultural reasons. And between the government's refusal to do that and the government's underdevelopment of the region of Saada in particular compared to other regions, that fueled a lot of grievances in, in the far north, which are ultimately sort of political and economic arguments more than they are doctrinal arguments, right? But eventually... Um, Hezbollah, when, when, Yemen, when North and South Yemen unified in 1990 and they adopted a multi-party electoral framework, this political party organized that expressed the preferences of those Salafi figures as well as some much more centrist Muslim brothers and also some tribal conservatives from, from the North as well. That party functioned in the opposition in Yemen, in opposition to Ali Abdullah Saleh, not always in opposition, but it moved gradually more towards opposition. And in 2011, during the transitional framework, it got a, sh a share of leadership power through the new cabinet, through the new power sharing government, at the same time that the Houthis were excluded. So this is a way in which this thing that, that exists as a kind of sectarian difference really gets institutionalized in a way it's not driven, as Afras has said, by doctrinal debates that have shaped the way people pray or the incidence of intermarriage or those kind of things, but really grievances about access to material resources, to equal protection by the state, those kind of grievances. Yeah. In the South, then at the same time, where society was you know, following the legacies of Marxist rule, uh, where formal Islamist organizations had not been allowed to exist under Marxist rule uh, in the PDRY and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, after unification and after the Islah Party really became more, more prominent after 1994, um, there, there was a major push of Islahi figures in the South to recruit their members 
people to come into the new political party and people in the South from a more secular or from a more leftist perspective viewed that as a kind of northern hegemony, a kind of northern cultural hegemony and saw their society being changed by the Islah party. Why does all of this matter today? Um, well, first of all, when the Houthis came into Sana'a in, 2000, in September 2014, when they came into Sana'a for the first time, uh, they didn't go after Sunnis. Hmm. They went after the symbolic targets of the Islah party, the party offices, specific individuals high in the party. So the, the, the rivalry was expressed in those terms more than in sectarian terms. And then in the South today, the Islah party itself has been targeted not now by people who are of a Shi'i or a Zaydi background, but by the United Arab Emirates, which has an axe to grind with the Muslim Brotherhood. The U.S. Congress has moved to finally end support for the Saudi-led coalition's war on Yemen. And Stacy, you and Jillian Schwedler wrote, quote, The congressional resolutions, while welcome and overdue, are unlikely to bring an end to the war in Yemen unless deeper entanglements that have propelled decades of U.S. interventionism in the Middle East are also addressed. What is the significance of this resolution, both in terms of what concrete impact it will have on actually ending U.S. participation in the war, and also, more broadly, in terms of what its immediate and more long-term impacts might be on the domestic politics of U.S. foreign policy and the geopolitical order that that policy shapes? Domestically speaking as an American, um, I'm incredibly encouraged by the momentum that's been built over the past couple of years um, to limit our role in the war in Yemen, which is a direct role, honestly, uh, and to hold our elected officials accountable for the kind of foreign policy that we want or envision. I think that that's appropriate and a good use of, of Congress's oversight power. Uh, at the same time, I think the conventional wisdom is that President Trump is likely to veto it. I have read a couple of dissenting cases saying that he might not, but I, I feel pretty confident that he'll veto it and that it isn't actually necessarily going to stop um, U.S. support for the war. That said, stopping U.S. support for the war doesn't stop the war. Right? It changes the way the war is proceeding. I think the greatest achievement of this legislation might might be to pressure Saudis in particular, but the coalition more generally, um, into more good faith negotiations in the peace process. The peace process is stalled. And so my greatest hope is that this legislation can advance the peace process, which a negotiated solution is the only solution to the war in Yemen. There's not a military solution to be had. I second your last point, uh, because if if you see there is a certain pattern of how whenever uh, things start moving uh, in the Congress and trying to uh, you know limit the U.S. role, it seems uh, uh, there is a greater political will internationally to find an end or at least to, to, to have peace talks. So in October, following the killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and also the developments within the Congress uh, and the resolution against the war, the Defense uh, Secretary, 
he went publicly and, and suggested that we need to have the peace talks within 30 days. And it happened. Like next month, it took some more than 30 uh, days. And then in December, it happened. And I, unfortunately, he's out of his uh, position right now. I'm very sad that that international political will is lost without achieving much from the peace talks. And now we're just waiting for another you know, major uh, international uh, event, uh, God knows, uh, another Jamal Khashoggi, so something could happen for Yemen. I mean, I do think it's clear it, it's come across in, in, I was in Oman last year um, meeting with Yemenis and with Omanis there, uh, and it was very clear from people from a broad cross-section of political persuasions that President Hadi his role in particular has been undermined over the course of the war, that uh, some of the decisions that he's taken and his relationship to the coalition, and that the peace process is premised on putting him back in power and restoring essentially the status quo ante. And that strikes me also as a real flaw in the current peace process, that being too wedded to putting things back the way they were four years before this war started, you know, I mean, four years of devastating fragmentation means that now the reconstruction challenge has fundamentally changed the path that lays ahead. And so I think if the if negotiations are restarting, my hope is that they will restart with a more open minded premise to what negotiations need to include and entail. Afra, you write that the war has brought about an intensification of the exclusion and oppression of women in Yemen. But you write that although Yemen's intense poverty has long resulted in severe forms of gender-based deprivation and oppression, that Yemeni women had also won far greater social rights than elsewhere across the region, and that women have played a key role in the country's social and political movements. How has the war impacted all of that? In what ways is the war creating new forms of gendered violence and oppression? And in what sense is the war's violence and destruction rather gravely exacerbating pre-existing gendered inequalities and systems of domination? Yeah. Well, uh, the the topic of women uh, uh, is very um, dear to my heart because I feel really... I feel rage and also like happy for my Saudi uh, sisters achieving some, you know, progress. We can debate the timing, but I I think it's very related to the war in Yemen and for Saudi Arabia trying to polish its image and and giving more civil liberties to uh, the Saudi uh, citizens. So women have have achieved in Saudi Arabia many, many merits during uh, the war. But at the same time, uh, among all the destruction in Yemen, uh, the Mirits women uh, worked really hard in Yemen to achieve during the uprising uh, are gone, are gone. So if, yes, the situation for everyone, a male and female, before uh, the uprising and before all these political turmoil that we are in, have been bad for everyone. Um, Yemen, if you check the uh, International uh, Human Development Index, is for many years has been in, in the worst rank. So uh, education and healthcare and all these services 
are bad for everyone. And women did, were really fighting during that time, but they had almost non-political uh, representation. Um, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, towards, uh, I think, the 2000-something, uh, gave a 15% uh, quota for women um, representation in the parliament. And still, there were many challenges for the women to make it to the parliament. So we had only one or two women in the parliament, and now they're even they passed away. But 2011 was a very, very critical moment for women mobilizing each other and really working hard to make sure a greater uh, political representation. So towards 2013 and 2014, they had a 30 percent uh, political uh, representation and a promise to have that uh, included in the draft of the uh, national uh, constitution and and having uh, an article that assures women's 30% representation in all um, uh, committees to be formed in the future. So that was a huge achievement. But today, all of that is gone. Even in the small uh, uh, political process that could happen, such as a peace talk, uh, there is no much interest in, in including women. And actually, there is a reluctance, and sometimes they're blocking women from attending uh, uh, these uh, peace talks uh, tables and being part, an active participant in the peace talks. And I've interviewed many uh, women uh, who are trying to find an access to these peace talks, whether women politician or activists or from the uh, civil society organizations. And they told me, like, some of the men, the, uh, the politicians, uh, they think that it's not the right time to include women at this stage. And some think that this is a very tough job at this moment and we, we, we can't have women right now, maybe later. And some of them, they think that really it's not important to have women, whether now or later. And women are not the, the fit uh, or competent uh, to, to be in, in politics. So it's very, very frustrating, and uh, it will take local and international will, political will, to give that seat for women. But still, women are still fighting and trying to have at least whatever space is available and be heard. For that, I take really, I, I, I appreciate the efforts from the, the special envoy from the UN who's forming some groups to include uh, women uh, who have long uh, experience and expertise in Yemeni politics and have them as consultants. So that was one smart way to bring women into, not necessarily the table, but at least into the room. Right. And I think if you look at what's going on with the international donor agencies and some of the humanitarian aid agencies, they're making a lot of use of women in, in the sense that women are frontline providers of services in their communities. And in the context of the kind of fragmentation that we've talked about, um, that one of the things that's fragmented is the data gathering capacity um, to know exactly where needs are greatest and what kind of needs exist. And so women have been providing critical information 
for sort of post-war reconstruction planning. At the same time, I haven't seen nearly enough movement among those same organizations towards the idea that women might have um, political rights as well as political, uh, political rights that they could claim in addition to these kinds of services that they can provide. So I think that there's a, a way in which women are being sort of marginalized maybe by Yemeni women are being marginalized perhaps by Yemeni men and by the focus on bringing combatants to the table for the peace process, but they're also being instrumentalized or, or used, quite frankly, um, by outside agencies that are planning and thinking about reconstruction. I want to close by asking, what is the path to a just peace? What would a just peace require? And to what extent does such a peace seem possible? And lastly, for my listeners in the U.S. and elsewhere outside of Yemen, what can they do to help push for a just end to this bloodshed? Yeah, we need an immediate end to the instrumentalization of hunger. I mean, that seems to me, uh, in terms of what people can do, they can they can mobilize towards that end. But uh, the requisites for a just peace are are much bigger. And I think they're not, I mean, quite frankly, they're not for me to say, but I think they have to involve or include the voices of a much wider number of constituents, so much wider number of different groups in Yemen than any existing framework yet does. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think uh, anyone listening who's interested in, in trying to find an end to this war, um, one person cannot do everything, but at least they can do something. And that's just to make noise. Write to your pol- politicians, write to your, uh, I don't know, representatives, whether in the U.S. or y- Europe or elsewhere. Just write and ask them, what are you doing to prevent the, the war or to stop the war in Yemen? I really, I, I want to ask people for donation and so on, but I think really the problem needs more than just donations. We need a political will. And I quote my mother uh, in Sana'a, she told me, we don't, we don't need, we're not thirsty, we don't need food, we don't need uh, medicine. We're thirsty for a political will uh, to end the war. So people are really desperate for things to happen and, and, and then life to get at least back to normal. Because as I told you, it's not really that food does not exist in Yemen or you know, there is some kind of drought or running out of food. And no, it's, it's the political uh, you know, driving forces of, that led to where people, people are starving today in the way they're, they're starving. I think one thing that I I would like to add in terms of maybe not just why people should care about this, I think we've talked about that, but also uh, maybe how to care about this. So in the newest issue of Middle East Report, to which uh, Afrah and I both contributed, Danny Postel has an account of the growing anti-war movement in the United States and the range of organizations that have gotten active uh, in in that context to help bring about this um, congressional solution, the, the Senate or the War Powers resolution. And it's wonderful, right? It's wonderful that that's grown and that's grown because people called and put pressure on and tweeted and did all of that kind of work and built that solidarity. The problem is that some of that came as a kind of reactive anti-Saudi 
impulse after Khashoggi's assassination. But the solution to this war is not also not like, oh, the Saudis have to stop the war. That's also not the solution. What's really necessary is a peace process that takes account of Yemeni voices, uh, as well as regional realities, and but isn't driven, I think, primarily by Americans and our concerns. Uh, so I think I would really, um, I would caution against reflexive anti-Saudi kind of understandings of the war as much as I would caution against any other kind of reductive framework. And I would say that what we really need is a peace process that foregrounds and centers the needs of, of diverse Yemeni communities. It sounds like that also requires challenging U.S. anti-terror, counterterrorism policy in the country and the region. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I, I would hope that we could learn a lesson from the failed transitional process that uh, moments of transition are not moments for us to escalate our own counterterrorism objectives uh, or to work outside of the framework of Yemeni sovereignty. If, if I may add uh, the, the point that I forgot earlier, I think the, we need to look at this conflict as a moment where we have to learn all the destructive policies that led to where we are today. And that includes also policymakers uh, in the U.S. and try to have this conflict as a moment where we change our long-term policy towards Yemen. Hopefully, someone who's listening at least would would realize that uh, the U.S. has one destructive role in the war and and they need to rethink how they are uh, dealing with Yemen all these years and how to go on forward. Absolutely. Well, Afra Nasser and Stacey Philbrick-Yadov, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Afra Nasser, an independent Yemeni journalist and editor-in-chief of the Sana Review, and Stacey Philbrick-Yadov, a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, who co-edited and contributed to Middle East Report's latest issue, The Fight for Yemen. Next up is Adam Hania, who teaches in the Development Studies Department at SOAS, University of London, and contributed an article entitled Ambitions of a Global Gulf to the latest Middle East Report. His current research looks at changing forms of class and capital accumulation within the global economy, with a particular focus on the Middle East. His latest book, Money, Markets, and Monarchies, The Gulf Cooperation Council and the Political Economy of the Contemporary Middle East, was published late last year by Cambridge University Press. Adam Hania, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Daniel. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. You write that we can't understand the Yemen conflict without placing it in a broader geopolitical context. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, you explain, are not only lead actors in violent conflicts stretching from Syria to Libya, but also promoters of a reactionary political economic paradigm that combines economic liberalization with hardening authoritarianism all across the region, and all toward the end of constructing a particular transnational political economic order. Explain the Gulf's geopolitical strategy, how it has shaped the region, and how it can help us understand 
the war in Yemen? I mean, this is a, it's a very important question, I think. I, I, I think I might begin by just uh, giving a bit of background to how we understand the Gulf's political economy uh, and then move on to the kind of geopolitical questions. I think the first thing we need to say is that the Gulf states uh, are need to be seen as capitalist uh, states. Uh, there's this kind of a certain trend or tendency within a lot of discussion about the Gulf to view these states through Orientalist tropes or a kind of exceptionalism uh, that tries to explain the Gulf through things like Islam, tribal uh, affiliations, sectarianism, or ruling family uh, intrigues. Uh, I mean, these are all very important things, I think, but I think it's important to step uh, a little bit behind these factors and, and look more closely at the Gulf as a capitalist um, zone and as these states as being capitalist uh, states. I think that what that does is points our attention to tracing how capitalist accumulation takes place uh, in the Gulf. Um, clearly, as part of this oil and, and natural gas is a, is a central uh, question. And what's happened over the last, well, basically since the early 2000s up until mid-2014, the generally rising price of oil on global market has meant a very large uh, pool of surplus capital uh, accumulating uh, in the Gulf. And this surplus capital has underpinned the growth of very large uh, diversified conglomerates throughout the region whose activities span a range of different sectors. This includes construction and real estate, banking and finance, retail, industry, and so forth. Now, these conglomerates are very uh, closely linked to the state in the Gulf and, of course, the ruling families through the state. But I think what's important to note, and this ties to your question about the, the changes to the region over the last uh, few decades, is that there has been a, a very pronounced internationalization in the activities uh, of these conglomerates over the last 20 years or so. There, there's two kind of spatial scales I think we need to think about this. Firstly, there's the, the, the larger global questions and uh, the Gulf conglomerates, Gulf businesses, and I'm including here, obviously, the uh, uh, state-owned uh, sovereign wealth funds and, and investments by Gulf governments themselves. These have expanded into many sectors of the, of the world market, including, in particular, in, in, in Europe and, and North America. We can find Gulf investments throughout uh, all sectors of, of, of modern economies um, in, these, in these areas. But Particularly important, I think, is the increasing levels of flows that have also gone into neighboring countries in the Middle East. I don't want to imply here that the Middle East predominates in the, in the Gulf's um, kind of expansion or internationalization. That, that's not the case, but it is significant, um, these, these flows into the region. Uh, and it's significant because it's occurred... Uh, alongside or, 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 or at the same time as the waves of uh, structural adjustment um, that have hit the region um, since the, well, beginning in, in the 1990s uh, and even earlier, but really accelerating um, over the 2000s. These are structural adjustment packages uh, in places such as Egypt, Tunisia, Jordan, Lebanon, other states in North Africa that have been promoted by the World Bank and, and the IMF and other international institutions. And what's happened is that these structural adjustment measures have been 
coupled and been closely bound up with this internationalization of Gulf capitalism into the rest of, of the region. So when we've seen things like privatization and the opening up of, of economies to foreign direct investment in places like Egypt, uh, these measures have been reinforced by and at the same time have uh, helped to, to reinforce the Gulf's increasingly deep uh, connections to the wider regional political economy. So the Gulf has been one of the prime beneficiaries of this kind of neoliberal shift that we've seen in the Middle East over the last two decades. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of regional variation here. Not all countries have experienced this in, in the same kind of way. You know, Morocco and Algeria, for example, sit very differently in their relationship um, to Gulf capital flows than places like Egypt, Jordan, or Lebanon. But, but the basic point remains that concomitant with this kind of neoliberalization of the region, the Gulf's um, connection and, and involvement has been increasingly, or, or the region has become increasingly bound up with the dynamics of, of capitalism um, in, in the Gulf itself. We do also need to be very cognizant here, I think, of the very real differences or tensions um, within the Gulf, and, and I think we'll get to this later. But I just want to highlight, I think, two key points that I think are connected to this shift in the regional political economy and kind of illuminate the Gulf's geopolitical or geostrategic uh, uh, orientation to the region. I think the first thing is that the regional expansion of the Gulf political economy has brought with it a critical political dimension as well. The Gulf states have become really bound up and very concerned with steering the political transitions that have unfolded since the uh, region-wide uprisings that, uh, from end of 2010 and through 2011 onwards. And I think this is a really striking feature uh, over the last few years. And it's something I think that that anyone who looks at the region really is, uh, is, is struck by. We can see in Syria, Libya, Tunisia, Palestine, Egypt, and of course Yemen, basically anywhere we look, that um, the Gulf's role in the political structures, the political transitions have become deeply uh, important to, to the post-2011 processes. Of course, again, we need to be aware of the rivalries within the Gulf here. So I think that's the first thing or the first kind of implication of this regional expansion of the Gulf's political economy. The second thing is that this is a, that's not just about the Gulf. It's overlaid with the ambitions of other regional powers such as Iran and Turkey and, and Israel. And perhaps most significantly, also the wider rivalries and interdependencies that we see within global capitalism today. So when we talk about things such as the, the position of the US in the world system, um, the apparent relative decline of the United States and the rise of other powers such as China and Russia and schisms within the European Union, all of these things that are happening globally played out on the, the, the region as well. And, and the Gulf has become increasingly bound up with these global uh, dynamics too. And this is, this is really important, particularly in the case of, of Yemen. And that's, that's why I, in the article I wrote for Merop, I, I, I titled the piece Ambitions um, of a Global Gulf. As you mentioned just a bit earlier, that the Arab Spring's launch about just a little under a decade ago also marked the beginning of a region-wide Saudi-led 
Gulf-led reaction. What threat did the Gulf leaders see in the uprisings, or in the case of Syria, maybe, what promise or opportunity did they see? And what impact has their reaction from Yemen to Bahrain to Syria and Egypt had in remaking the region? Well, I think, uh, firstly, to come to the point uh, or to to, uh, re-emphasize the point that I made earlier, that uh, these uh, uprisings uh, really shook the established political arrangements um, and the regional system that that had been in place basically since the end of um, the the Second Second, uh, World War. So... uh, in this in this context, um, the Gulf, precisely because it has been so um, uh, in, or increasingly bound up with the way that the wider region works, uh, and has a, a particular interest in ensuring that the direction and and the political regimes in the in the region are aligned with its own interests, it has meant that the Gulf has played a, a very prominent role in the kind of counter revolutionary wave um, that we saw post uh, post uh, 2011 in all states, including states that were not perhaps as as, uh, heavily affected by the uprisings, the Gulf has tried to steer the course of the political movement uh, in a manner amenable to their own uh, interests. So we can see this, for example, at a very uh, basic level around the uh, resurgence or the renewal of IMF and World Bank-led structural adjustment um, in the region that came very quickly after 2011. Um, So the IMF, the World Bank, and new actors like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development entered the region very quickly after 2011 and tried to reimpose or, or, or steer economic policy in the same kind of direction that had been uh, seen prior to the uprisings themselves. And the Gulf played a very important role in, in ensuring that this happened. So if we take Egypt, for example, the Gulf all the way through to the signing of, of an IMF agreement in 2016, the, the Gulf was playing a very important role in, in cajoling, encouraging, and paving the way for that agreement to be signed. One way they did this, which is, I think, quite an interesting feature of the Gulf policy in the region, is that they placed um, billions of of dollars of their own reserves inside the Egyptian uh, central bank, to such a degree that Egypt's largest debt today is actually to the Gulf um, and not to other uh, multilateral organizations or other other, other, uh, Western states. We see this similar pattern repeated in Tunisia, in Lebanon, and actually in Yemen, um, which we could perhaps talk about a little bit later. So that's that's at the level of of, of places like Egypt, um, Tunisia, Jordan, um, uh, but in in places that have been more hit by uh, armed conflict and and war, uh, uh, such as Syria, uh, we can see the Gulf has played a much more direct role in sponsoring various um, armed Islamic Islamist movements, um, which of course has been very destructive to the the course of the uprising against the Assad regime. Um, uh, But we can also see over the last 12 months or so uh, that there is a clear trend uh, towards the Gulf's uh, rapprochement with the the Assad regime. Um, We can see this 
in the reopening of embassies, for example, by Gulf states in Damascus. We can see this in the apparent move to bring Syria back into the uh, Arab League, which could only happen with the support of the Gulf. We can see this in the, the, the discussions around opening up direct flights between the Gulf, in particular Dubai and, uh, and Damascus. We can see this in DP World, for example, which is a Dubai-based uh, ports operator, which is setting up a 2,500-kilometer route or transport corridor between Jabal Ali port in Dubai and the Jordan-Syria border. All, all of these things, I think, are, are indicative of the way that the Gulf is trying to, if you like, step ahead of, of what's coming next and to place itself, position itself in readiness for what's going to happen after the, the war in Syria, um, and particularly in, in relation to reconstruction. In Libya, I think we can see similar patterns. Here, if we look at Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Egypt, and Egypt, of course, um, very strongly supported by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the way in which these three states have supported Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan, so-called Libyan National Army um, based in Tobruk, which has just in the last few days launched an attack um, on the country's uh, capital, Tripoli. Uh, again, we see... With millions of dollars in Saudi support. Yes, exactly. We, we see here the Gulf states and Egypt backing a particular political um, actor in, in Libya, um, one that's heavily armed, um, and looking at using this actor as their kind of man in Libya, if you like, much the same way in Egypt that they supported uh, uh, Sisi in, in the coup in Egypt. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, I think, and very revealing that actually just, I think, the week before the attack, the recent attack by Haftar on, um, on Tripoli, uh, he visited Saudi Arabia to meet with both King Salman and, and the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and I think there's no doubt that the Saudis would have green-lighted this kind of offensive. So, I mean, these kind of patterns are replicated across the region. We see the Gulf, because of it, precisely because of its, its very deep interest in the way that the region works, its political arrangements, its economic direction, the Gulf has stepped in after 2011 to steer, to steer it in a way amenable to its own interests. And in, in Libya, they are backing a revolt to seize control from the at least nominally internationally recognized and U.S.-backed government in Tripoli. Uh, yes, I mean I think we that's the government of national uh, national government of national accord recognized internationally and by the UN. I, I mean I think we need to be a little bit careful in 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 how we see that because. While it does, uh, at least at a rhetorical level, is supported by the U.S. and other Western European states, I think um, to some degree these states are also looking to see which way, you know, which way the wind blows in in Libya. So, and some U.S. military official recently put it just like that: like we we understand that it could go either way, and don't want to bet on a losing horse, basically. Yes, exactly. I think that's precisely what what we're seeing. How is it that? These international financial institutions that you were referring to earlier, the World Bank, IMF, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, how is it that, that these institutions and golf strategies have coincided so harmoniously? And also, how is it that authoritarianism and neoliberalism likewise go so well together? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting uh, 
interest feature of of the region and it's it's something that runs against if you like the kind of standard liberal interpretations of 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 neoliberalism that that tend to kind of see you know, free markets, as Bush put it, uh, free markets and free elections as being mutually reinforcing that you just need to kind of um, liberalize the economy. And then what the region clearly demonstrates is the fact that there is actually absolutely no contradiction between neoliberal reform, um, particularly that backed by international financial institutions and uh, authoritarian regime. This is something that uh, we've seen clearly in places like Egypt and Tunisia, where the implementation of neoliberalism came with the coming to power of these authoritarian governments that were overthrown in, in, in 2011. So I don't think there's any kind of any kind of contradiction there. And it's, it's not surprising because, you know, as, as you erode living standards, um, as you see increasing polarization of wealth and power, you need authoritarian governments to hold populations in place. And that's that's why I think this this linkage is very clear, and it's it, this is why uh, that uh, places like Tunisia and Egypt were so much held up as regional mod models, places that other countries should emulate in the region, and in fact globally. Egypt, for example, was awarded by the World Bank um, in 20, 2010, I believe, as the world's best economic reformer. You know, this is not really spoken about much by the World Bank today, but it's it's something that I think very clearly indicates this kind of coming together of authoritarianism and and uh, and and neoliberal reform. But what's happened post 2011 is that, as I mentioned, there's kind of been an intensification or an attempt to make sure that these economic models continue and in fact are deepened. As as often happens around the world, moments of crisis are often from the perspective of capital seen as moments of opportunity. So they've used the, all of the, the very deep crises as a way to kind of reshape social relations and deepen these economic measures, in particular around things such as uh, further privatizations, cutbacks to, to subsidies around food, and opening up further sectors to, to, um, to, to foreign direct investment. I should say, by the way, this, this kind of twinning of of neoliberalism and authoritarianism isn't isn't just an anomaly in the Middle East. Um, we can see, I think, very clearly today. I'm currently interviewing you from Chile. Ah, oh, yes, perfect, a perfect example. Of, you know, perhaps the the beginning uh, of this uh, of of the neoliberal process, and and um, very clearly demonstration of how this kind of liberal myth of, of free markets and free democracy don't don't work. You write that the Saudi-led war on Yemen is driven by something that we never, to my knowledge, hear about in the U.S. press, which is Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, quote, attempt to position themselves as the principal mediators of the maritime routes and territorial hinterlands located in and around the Arabian Peninsula, a strategic prize that will be decisive to shaping the Middle East's future geopolitical landscape. Explain Yemen's geostrategic importance for the Gulf states and how that fits into Gulf interests that stretch all the way to India and China. Yes. I mean, the first thing I think we should note here is that we are talking about the poorest country uh, in the Middle East, uh, literally sitting alongside uh, the wealthiest zone in, in the area, the Gulf, the Gulf state. I think this is very important because it really does sharply capture, I think, the vast inequalities and unevenness, if you like, of the Middle East uh, today. But 
in in relation to kind of the geo this kind of geostrategic geopolitical uh, questions, I think we need to situate this in the in the patterns that I was discussing earlier. The whole of the Indian Ocean, Red Sea, Mediterranean zone is really emerging as a key battleground in wider uh, global struggles. So we can see this, for example, very clearly in uh, China's One Belt, One Road initiative, where the maritime uh, leg of, of, of the One Belt, One Road runs directly through this, uh, through this space, linking the East, the Far East, South Asia, the Arabian Peninsula, East Africa, the Mediterranean, all the, all the way into Europe. And within this kind of, within these maritime routes, the control over ports and, and other transshipment points are very important to to how uh, you know how, how these global patterns are, are going to going to play out. It's 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 much bigger, I should point out, than just the, the maritime routes because alongside these routes you also have military bases, you have uh, financial and logistical infrastructures, and of course political arrangements that that mediate all of these um, these, these kinds of flows. So I think the Gulf's projection of power will be particularly its intervention in Yemen, will be really critical to how these kinds of global patterns play out and evolve over the next few years. And I think it's interesting because what it's doing is, is generating some kind of a very complex, in fact, tensions and political alliances in this kind of broader, broader space. So you know, it's, I'm sure everyone is, is very aware that the Gulf has traditionally been important regional ally of the United States and other Western, other Western countries. And that certainly remains true today. But at the same time, we've seen in the last decade or so, uh, I think a, a, a quite a clear or emerging pivot, if you like, of the Gulf towards Asia, in particular towards China. China, for example, is now Saudi Arabia's uh, largest uh, export partner. There have been some very high-profile and important visits uh, just this year, in fact, in February, by uh, Saudi by Mohammed bin Salman, um, Saudi Crown Prince, to China, where he signed very large number of joint projects, joint investment projects, clearly linked to the One Belt One Road. It's interesting, as an aside, that and again pointing out that Islam doesn't drive everything what Saudi, that Saudi Arabia does, but he, he made very little mention and in fact supported China's attitude towards the Uyghur people um, during this visit um, to China in February. It's broader than just China. We can see, for example, in Malaysia, uh, the largest single foreign investment in Malaysia today is actually a Saudi uh, joint venture. So there are these this, this kind of pivot to Asia that we can see that is partly connected to the, to the One Belt, One Road stuff. Saudi Arabia, for example, further visits by um, Mohammed bin Salman in, in recent months to, to Pakistan, where he pledged $20 billion, including a $10 billion uh, refinery uh, project in uh, Gwadar area, where, where China is also building a port as part of the One Belt, One Road. So there, there are these kinds of attempts by the Gulf to, to take a stake, if you like, in, um, in China's uh, remaking of the world map. But at the same time, the, the Gulf remains very much within the US kind of sphere uh, and, and the, the political and, and uh, military alliances and economic relations um, with the US. So Yemen is really, uh, I think, needs to be seen within this kind of framework, that it's part of the global um, 
it, it's part of the changing nature of, 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 of global capitalism and the emergence of these new powers. And it, it's, it's, it's these actors trying to, to jostle and, and position themselves within this. A critical part of that global framework on the regional level that you write about that I'd never heard of that I recall is the Red Sea Alliance, which you write, quote, aims to establish a common security and political framework between the kingdom and six other countries bordering the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aden, Egypt, Djibouti, Somalia, Sudan, Yemen, and Jordan. It's a geostrategic program that helps to explain everything from Egypt's recent session of its Red Sea islands of Sanifer and Tehran to the Gulf Coalition's intensely focused attacks on the northern Yemeni port of Al-Qudeda. Explain the Red Sea Alliance and how Gulf strategy and the Horn of Africa as a whole fits into this war in Yemen. Yes, this this I think is is very important, um, and I really think what this what this points to is it 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 encapsulates the new spatial geographies um, that are emerging in the region as part of this kind of global realignment realignment um, that I spoke about uh, earlier. The Red Sea Alliance, uh, as you pointed out, is this common security and and political framework um, between Saudi Arabia and six other countries that border the Red Sea um, and the Gulf of Aden. What what it's attempting to do, I think, is uh, to knit these countries much more closely to Saudi's wider power projection over this very critical uh, zone. And the the seeding of the islands in the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia, which happened in in, in 2017, is an important um, indication of this, because this this caused a lot of um, consternation and protest uh, among the Egyptian public, but it was pushed through by the Egyptian military and, and um, President Sisi, backed by backed by Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE, and what these two islands uh, do is they basically link the coast of Egypt, the Red Sea, and Saudi Arabia's western coast into a single zone under uh, Saudi hegemony. I think this is what this the, the significance of this this seeding of the islands to 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 Saudi is they they they're planned to form part of a of a 500 billion dollar uh, mega city project launched by Saudi Arabia that will see uh, new uh, mega cities economic zones agricultural areas kind of developed on both sides both the Egyptian and the Saudi side and on these islands under Saudi um, control and Saudi Saudi hegemony so. I think the Red Sea Alliance is a kind of further step in this process where Saudi Arabia is really trying to ensure its presence um, and, and bringing into its, its sphere of, of, of influence these, these um, East African or Horn of states around Egypt, North of Africa and, and um, the Horn of Africa. I, th- I should say the Horn of Africa has been a particular focus of the UAE in, in recent years. Uh, we can see this for example, with the uh, the UAE's establishment of ports, uh, military bases, uh, humanitarian kind of supply lines in, in places such as uh, Eritrea, uh, Djibouti, Somaliland. Um, the, the UAE has also been uh, uh, training and equipping military and security forces in, in the Horn of Africa. And Emirates, similar to... Um, the, the point I noted earlier about the placement of central bank reserves, 
Gulf Central Bank Reserves. The Emirates have put, um, I think, over $1 billion worth of reserves in the, the central banks of Ethiopia and, and Sudan. And on top of all of this, we need to think about also the Gulf's investment in land and agricultural areas in, in these countries, as well as the presence of Gulf banks, Gulf telecoms, and, and other other kinds of, of firms. So all, all of this, I think, is, 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 again, very closely linked to these, these changing uh, rivalries at the, global, at the global scale, partly to do with China and China's interest in, in this zone, but also the ongoing presence of, of uh, obviously, the United States and European uh, militaries in, in the Horn of Africa and, and around, around this area. It's interesting, you know, China's first overseas military base was, was launched um, just recently in, in Djibouti, one of the countries that really the Gulf has kind of targeted for this kind of uh, expansion. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by, well, good question who. You frequently hear ads right here from Verso, University of California Press, and coming soon, N Plus One. We are now looking for new publishers to advertise with us. Do you write or work for a magazine or book publisher? If you do, can you think of any group of people more interested in buying smart left-wing books and magazines than Dig listeners? Because, well, I sure can't. If you want to advertise your media product on The Dig, email me at firstnamelastname at gmail.com. That's danieldenver at gmail.com. That is also, incidentally, where you may send me listener letters, which, as long as they are not intensely mean, I always do my best to respond to. Okay, thank you, and back to the show. To understand the various geopolitical interests at play, you write, we must examine how they are playing out in very regionally specific ways inside of Yemen, because the Yemeni conflict is not, as I think many American and other listeners outside of of the region might believe, a uniform or homogenous one, but rather a collection of multiple multi-party conflicts. Explain what the fragmented geography of these multiple conflicts reveals about the larger forces at play and what it reveals about the tensions within the Gulf Coalition and how those tensions might play out as the war continues and ultimately comes to some sort of close? Well, I think the first place to start is is with the the Gulf Coalition and, and the, the launch, uh, the invasion that began in, in March 2015. This was obviously led by Saudi Arabia and, 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 and in particular Saudi Arabia, but also the UAE in alliance with nine other countries, many of them countries that I've spoken about uh, so far, there was wider regional support from places like Djibouti and Eritrea, Somalia, which which had provided supply lines um, uh, for the Gulf Coalition. Uh, and of course, very, very importantly, something we um, need to always foreground in, in discussion of this is the, is the very strong support by the United States and Britain um, and deep involvement in, in the war um, itself, both in terms of supplying weapons, but also direct uh, uh, military um, advice and, and, and supervision and stuff. So 
And we don't often hear about Britain here. I think many people are now, at least given the recent politicization of this conflict in the U.S., long overdue politicization. There's an awareness that the U.S. is very much involved, but I, Britain is not is not mentioned very often. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something. It's it's gaining increasing awareness, I think, within the UK. You know, there is a range of different groups who are campaigning around UK arms sales to the Gulf, and and uh, in particular, the UK's involvement in in the war in Yemen. It's something that I think is is getting increasing attention, not as much as 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 ne- as needed, but you know, the UK depends very heavily. I mean, one of its principal alliances or relationships with the Gulf in general is through. Um, the sale of of weapons. So it's a very important feature of how the UK uh, relates uh, to the Gulf. I mean, to to come back to your question around uh, the kind of geography of of the conflict. So, you know, I think there's kind of clear territorial division that's been um, emerging. Saudi Arabia has focused on on fighting mostly in in the north. And as part of this has seized or in addition to this, has seized a number of strategic ports. In, I think, 2017, Saudi Arabia sent troops into into the eastern province of Al-Mahra, taking over a, a, a regional airport and a port, a maritime port um, in, in, that, in that province. You know, reflecting some of the things that I was speaking about earlier, the intention by this of of capturing this port line and and the other infrastructure networks in in this um in this eastern province is aimed at said to be aimed at building a pipeline directly from Saudi Arabia to the Indian Ocean. One of the articles in the in the in the issue Merit, recent Merit issue by Suzanne Dalgreen I think does a very nice job of unpacking these these dynamics. The UAE has focused largely on the south of of the country and again has um, seized uh, three key ports as well as Yemen's uh, sole gas liquefaction plant and an oil export terminal. So again, you can see, I think, uh, the way that the war is very much about taking these critical infrastructure points that very often located along the coastal areas um, and these kind of routes that I, I, I spoke about earlier. They've done this through building alliances with various uh, militias and, and different tribal groups, armed groups in, in Yemen, um, providing weapons, cars, even passports um, in some cases um, to, the, to these different uh, groups. As, as I mentioned, the, the, uh, I think one of the interesting ways that this kind of power projection is taking place is through the uh, placement of, of, of reserves or currency reserves. Um, and this has been the case in Yemen as well, where Saudi Arabia placed uh, up to $3 billion in Yemen's central bank from its own, own, own um, reserves. And indeed, actually, up until, uh, and this is, I find, quite remarkable, up until early 2018, the revenues uh, from Yemen's oil exports were actually held in a Saudi-owned bank in, in Riyadh, in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia. So I think we can see very clearly that there is this, the, these, these ways that the intervention and the invasion has kind of facilitated much deeper implantation of, of um, both Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. There's 
clearly a cooperation in the way this has taken place, but there's also a certain territorial um, uh, division. And these two states have their own interests. Saudi Arabia and the UAE have their own interests, and there's a rivalry between them over over the Yemen situation. I think perhaps this is most clearly um, demonstrated in the island of uh, Socotra, uh, which is a, a Yemeni island, which is very strategically located. It's, it's um, at the mouth of the Gulf of Aden, so leads all the way, uh, you know, on, on the shipping routes all the way through um, the Red Sea. It's very close to Somalia. And Socotra has been, there's, there's been some interesting talk in, in the Arabic press in, in, in recent months about the sharp rivalries that we're seeing um, on that island uh, between Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE, each jostling to kind of control the ports and the various infrastructures um, present uh, present there. I, I think in the post-war or post-conflict context, we're going to see a sharpening actually of these of these rivalries. Um, the UAE, for example, and Dubai in particular, has positioned itself um, as a major uh, humanitarian actor globally, basically. Um, Saudi Arabia is also trying to, to, to take control of some of these humanitarian routes that overlap so closely um, with, with the military, uh, military routes as well. One major piece of the political economy underpinning the war in Yemen, and also quite directly the fighting of that war, is the Gulf states' use of non-citizen labor. On the one hand, this is the case domestically within Saudi Arabia and other wealthy Gulf nations, where guest workers or non-citizen workers play a huge role on both the hyper-exploited lower rungs of the labor market and also, if I have it right, on the professional high end as well. And then that's sort of replicated externally in warfare, where you have mercenaries forming a core part of the Gulf Coalition's fighting force in Yemen. What's more, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reports, quote, Israeli cyber companies, gun traders, terror warfare instructors, and even paid hitmen operated by an Israeli-owned company are partners to the war in Yemen. And this company, it's a has American military vets working for the Israeli-founded American-registered company Spearhead Operations Group, which has reportedly been responsible for carrying out multiple assassinations in Yemen, including of the clergyman Ansaf Ali Mayo in December 2015. In addition, Israel has reportedly been involved in training Colombian and Nepali mercenaries recruited by the UAE in the Negev, And these mercenaries, in a truly weird twist, were reportedly recruited by the UAE for the war in Yemen by a former Palestinian intelligence chief for Gaza named Mohammed Dalan, who was ousted from Fatah's central committee. And a few more notes to add here. Former American General Stephen, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Stephen Tumajin, wears a UAE uniform commanding their Joint Aviation Command, and he actually headed a combat helicopter unit fighting in Yemen. Pakistanis pilot Saudi planes, the UAE Presidential Guard commander is a former Australian general, and of course there are huge numbers of poor Sudanese mercenaries fighting and dying in the field. What do you make of the remarkably pervasive privatization and transnationalization of the war in Yemen on both the high and low ends, and how does this fit into 
broader political economic patterns across the Gulf? Yes, I mean, I think this is a really uh, extremely important point, and I, I think it's often uh, left out in in discussions uh, around the war, and and not just in Yemen war, more generally, as well as dynamics in the Gulf. Um, I mean, to begin with, the kind of question of of non-citizen migrant labour um, in the Gulf itself. This is really important. In in all the Gulf states, the non-citizen migrant workforce makes up more than 50% of the labor force in in all of these uh, in all of the six uh, states in in Arab Gulf Arab states this is a remarkable figure there's there's nowhere else in the world where you have such a high proportion of the labor force uh, made up of of people uh, who are non 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 citizens uh, and thus who can exercise no control over the nation states within which they reside in labor Yes, exactly. I mean, it's very important to realize that these workers uh, lack any possible route um, to citizenship or or permanent residency uh, in the Gulf. Uh, It's not to say that sometimes citizenship uh, or passports are not given, and I'll uh, I'll come back to this in connection to um, the military thing in a a second, but uh, there's no formalized route, um, and uh, 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 unless you are extremely wealthy, and you are someone who uh, the Gulf states are trying to build uh, uh, an alliance with or a relationship, political relationship with, um, such as the Hariri family in Lebanon, uh, who holds Saudi citizenship, then there is no viable or, or possible route for, for any kind of citizenship. You're tied to your work permit and your sponsor, uh, and you can simply be deported at any point, coupled with, of course, um, the wider lack of any kind of political or or labor rights in in these states. Now, the majority of these workers are coming from uh, South Asia uh, uh, and places such as the Philippines. And there are, in addition, a significant number of Arab Arab workers. Um, but the predominant bulk of, of the migrant labor workforce are actually from South Asia. Now, this is important um, because, number one, this is obviously represents an exploitable and uh, easily repressible workforce, particularly in sectors such as construction. And construction has been uh, very important to the accumulation of, of those Gulf conglomerates that I, I spoke about earlier. If you look at these conglomerates, virtually all of them have their origins and continue to be involved in the construction sector to some degree. Uh, it's also important because at moments of, of economic crisis, these workers uh, can simply be sent home. We saw this, for example, in, in, in following the 2008 uh, global economic collapse uh, that hit um, Dubai uh, quite uh, quite hard, and what happened in response to this is the you know half of the construction projects in in the Emirate Dubai Emirate were closed down or, or put on hold, and workers were simply just put on planes. Planes were block booked, and workers were simply deported back um, to their their countries of of residence. So in this manner, and so in that situation, both the the political threat that laid-off workers might pose and their social reproduction costs during a time of crisis are both shunted off back into their home countries. That's exactly right. Uh, what we see here then is is kind of uh, the spatial displacement of the crisis. It's felt in the countrysides of, of uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so forth, and partly ameliorated in, in, in places such as Dubai. 
through these migrant uh, worker corridors. The other thing uh, which is very important to point out as well is that this migrant labor structure um, partly configures the relationship between citizens, um, Gulf citizens, and the state in the Gulf. Um, citizens, for example, can uh, find lucrative um, opportunities through the sale of, of, of work permits. Much of the kind of daily surveillance and control over migrant workforces are in effect uh, subcontracted uh, or outsourced uh, by the state to private citizens and, and private firms in, in the Gulf. Uh, that's the kind of day-to-day face-to-face -day, uh, reaction or interaction. Uh, I think this is something actually we can see more broadly in, our, in other parts of the world where citizen populations are, are being uh, brought in to kind of surveil and, and monitor um, uh, non-citizen populations in a much more, much more direct way. But as you, as you pointed out, that's basically the, the kind of general labor force in the Gulf. But there's also a very important sphere where non-citizens have played an important role, and that's in the military and, and security branches of, of the Gulf states. This is not new. Um, it actually has its precursors uh, in British colonialism and its, its, its role in the region where British colonial administrators would draw labor uh, or, or draw non-citizens from, from South Asia in particular to populate security forces in the Gulf. I mean, this is a tried and true divide and rule tactic where you kind of surround the ruler by these non-citizens in the in this place of security uh, and you lessen the possibility of any kind of autonomous power base developing uh, within a military uh, autonomous from the state and and, and the ruling um, family so we can see historically this kind of pattern under the British and then uh, much later after independence in 1971 of, of these states that, uh, that they continue to adopt this way where large proportion of the military and security forces are made up of, of, of non-citizens. And as you pointed out, in foreign uh, soldiers have played a really key role, I think, in the fighting um, uh, in Yemen. It's, it's true, this kind of, you know, the Western military or private Western military contractors from places such as the United States and Australia. I mean, it's hard to get precise information on this um, because of the, you know, the, the ways in which these things tend to happen kind of under the radar. But it's not the kind of thing they issue press no, releases about. No, but there's certainly been plenty of news reports around, around this. Uh, and as you pointed out, the presence of troops from, from places like Colombia, Nepal, Sudan, and, and the role of, of Israel in, in training uh, these kinds of troops have also been reported quite widely in, 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 in the media. Um, I, I I think one of the interesting things about this is to, is to place this kind of privatization or outsourcing of, of the Gulf's military projection in places like Yemen alongside the kind of increasing militarization and, and jingoism or jingoistic rhetoric or tropes that we see actually in the Gulf itself, which is directed at its own citizenry. It's quite interesting, I think, to look at you know places like the, the UAE, where you can see over the last few years uh, a growing kind of valorization of, of the military within kind of the, the popular or, or, the, or the, the official discourse. And this is 
really aimed at, at citizens, not so much at, at you know for for foreign consumption. It's 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 about you know trying to join, encouraging people to join the military. It's about noting the important um, uh, noting the role of the military in the in the unification of the of the different emirates in the UAE. It's about really centering them. The nobility of n- martial valor. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's something that's, uh, I mean, you can see this in terms of museums and, and, and so forth in, in, in the Emirates as well. Uh, it's something I think that in, perhaps in some ways in contradiction to the actual practice uh, and, and the large presence of these kind of mercenaries and foreign soldiers in, in the armies that are operating outside of the country's borders. You write that, quote, it is misplaced to view the Saudi Emirati attack on Yemen as simply a result of overzealous adventurism driven by the ambitions of the young and inexperienced crown princes of Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. Likewise, U.S. support for the war cannot be reduced to Trump's personal affinities with authoritarian rulers such as Mohammed bin Salman or the desire to market American arms to a GCC war machine with a seemingly insatiable appetite for weapons and military hardware. My question is, what sort of geopolitical interests, real and perceived, do drive the U.S. approach in the region and its investment in the perpetuation and construction of a particular regional order beyond the recent spectacle of Trump sword dancing with Saudi royalty? And relatedly, to what extent is the U.S. role in the region rooted in material interests? To what degree is it more ideologically driven? Or are those two things somewhat inextricable? Uh, I think to answer this question, we need to go back to the the, the points uh, made earlier about uh, if we're looking at the the nature of the global today, and the kinds of potentially uh, relative decline um, of the United States as, as global hegemon, and the rise of other other centres of capital accumulation um, at at the at the global level, it's in this context I think that the Middle East and the Gulf has has become so central to what's going on uh, and so central to the U.S. Um, U.S. foreign policy. The control of the Middle East really will be a linchpin to determining how these patterns develop in in the years the years to come. And this is, I think, uh, very. Fortunately, a function of of the role that oil and and also natural gas play within the global economy, despite the the um, you know the the horrors of climate change, uh, we we still see a heavy dependence of the world's economies on 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 these hydrocarbon resources, and and China's rise has been absolutely dependent um, upon hydrocarbons coming from the from the Gulf, and this is one reason why the One Belt One Road um, it really is 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 very much bound up with the Gulf in the in the longer term strategic calculations of China. So. I think this, this, there are very real material reasons why the U.S. Uh, and this has been true since the end of the Second World War. Why why the U.S. made such an orientation um, towards towards the Middle East? But it's not something that is in any way predetermined or or, or um, assured on the U.S. behalf. I think the U.S. is kind of doubling down on its historic relations that it's had between, with the Gulf states and also with, with states such as Israel. But at the same time, we, we do see it having much more difficulty 
playing a direct role in many many states in the region, um, partly to do with the um, what happened in, in after the 2003 invasion in, in Iraq. I think what the Gulf is, uh, what the U.S. Is, has to a significant degree has done has been to subcontract its regional interests to to places such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But this comes with some danger because it's not necessarily a neat alignment always between U.S. interests in the region and and those of the Gulf Gulf states. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of the the regional uh, or for the the ways in which these. The U.S. strategy is, is is connected to these global global patterns. In Syria, the slow close to the civil war has left much of the country firmly under Bashar al-Assad's control. And though you mentioned that there is a bit of a rapprochement taking place, it does mean that Syria has joined Iraq in being governed by Iran-aligned forces. Have these developments hardened Saudi and UAE resolve to dominate Yemen? And Relatedly and very importantly, how should we think of the conflict between Iran versus Saudi Arabia, Israel, et cetera, that axis, which has sort of been in the background of this whole discussion? How should we think about that? Because it's so often been presented as a, as a fundamentally sectarian one. The demonization of Iran clearly related to, to the kind of patterns I, I've discussed, and it's been led very much by the Trump administration, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and the UAE. I think that the principal effect of that has been to kind of further cement the alliance between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and, and, and the UAE. But in, in response, Iran has sought to find, uh, has sought to build um, its alliances with with states such as Russia, Russia and China. However, I, I think we need to be careful and and take these relationships with a bit of nuance and not kind of simply reduce them to kind of the great power rivalries. Not not simply read the region through these solely through these great power rivalries. Um, if we look, for example, at, at China. China has very close interdependencies with the Gulf um, that are that are growing. It's not simply backing Iran against uh, against the U.S. In the GCC itself, we see that not all the Gulf states are actually hostile to Iran. Um, you know, uh, we can see even well Qatar's uh, friendliness with Iran caused it to be blockaded by the rest of their, the Gulf, right? Yeah, I mean there has certainly been. Um, a closer move towards between Qatar and Iran uh, post the uh, the blockade in 2017, but if even if we look at, for example, Oman or or the United Arab Emirates itself, Dubai has long-standing ties to Iran um, in ways that are very different from Abu Dhabi's policy towards the country. So you know there are these kinds of complexities um, in there that that mean that. You know, we need to see Iran is 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 much like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar has tried in itself to project its own regional influence. It's it's playing within the same ballpark, within the same dynamic, and it's done this exactly the same way that the the Gulf states have done this through trying to build alliances, religious and political movements, and and governments through its military, the presence of the revolutionary Iranian Revolutionary Guards in 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 Syria and and, and elsewhere. It's this kind of uh, struggle, if you like, 
the regional struggle that involves um, Iran, it involves Turkey, it involves the Gulf. All of these powers are trying to position themselves um, in the wake of, 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 of 20, 2011. But as I think it's very important that we shouldn't once again exceptionalize Iran, and we certainly shouldn't hold it up as being some kind of um, anti-imperialist beacon, I think. I think it's clear Iran is... is is very much a capitalist country, and it has its own massive disparities of, of wealth and power. And we can see this reflected in, in popular protests and, and uh, 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 popular mobilizations in Iran over the, over the last few years. One thing we haven't talked about yet is Israel is more aligned than ever with the Gulf powers in Egypt against Iran. And of course, all of them, either explicitly or implicitly, aligned against the Palestinians. What are the origins of this alliance and the origins of becoming so much more unapologetically public in recent years? And what are the impacts and implications of that for the Palestinian struggle? And what does it reveal about the diminishing role of a long-standing, domestically instrumentalized Palestine solidarity in the politics of autocratic Arab regimes? Yes, uh, you're absolutely uh, correct. I think it's it's very evident that there's been an increasingly open alliance uh, between Israel and the Gulf states. I mean, this is not new, but the fact that it's become so brazen and so public uh, in the last just the last few years has, has really, I think, been quite striking. Um, we can see it in the open visits that have taken place of uh, you know retired Saudi generals to the to, to Israel, meeting with military officials. Um, uh, we've seen Netanyahu visit the Gulf. We've seen increasing uh, commercial and military ties openly spoken about um, between uh, Israel and, 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 and the Gulf, um, particularly, uh, and this is very important, I think, the, the ways in which Israeli surveillance and, and uh, electronic security companies have been taken on by some of the Gulf states as well. I think this is a very important, this kind of technological edge. We should note, I think, that this has been a, a long-standing aim of of United States and as well as European policy in the region to, to basically knit together their main allies, Israel uh, and the Gulf states, to normalize the relationships between the Gulf and Israel, to end the Arab boycott, um, and to do this under um, U.S. hegemony. This is, this is not this is not new. It's been a, a long-standing kind of strategic orientation. Um, of the u s government uh, in fact, this I think it was the primary goal of the of the Oslo Accords in the 1990s to to achieve this. I mean we saw all of the talk about the so called um, new economic peace, the new middle east we 're all based around this idea of ending israel 's isolation in the region and and uh, building so called normal economic ties with places such as the Gulf. It happened uh, with Jordan and with Egypt quite openly as part of the Oslo process, but um, the Gulf still uh, remained at least formally outside of outside of this kind of relationship. It's it's precisely, I think, because of Israel's origins in the expulsion of the Palestinian people in 1948 that the question of Palestine has always been so key, or and has been the primary obstacle to this kind of of, of normalisation. And that's exactly what Oslo 
uh, was designed to do. It was to designed to create a, a dependent um, uh, Palestinian authority, reliant upon um, external funding to create this patchwork of, of divided Palestinian territories. And in this way, kind of forced the Palestinian Authority to give a green light to Israel's normalization. And, you know, this, this you know, Trump's so-called deal of the century, I think, is exactly um, a continu- continu- continuity of, the, of this kind of strategy. I don't think we should see the current situation as kind of anomalous um, or out of step with the trajectories of the last three decades. It's certainly something that's moved very far under the Trump administration, but it's, it's, it's not out of step with what, what took place under Obama, or under Clinton, or any of the other um, U.S. presidents. As always, the, the, the obstacle to this remains the Palestinian people. While on the level of Arab government, we, we see this willingness to embrace normalization, uh, I think among Arab populations, there is still uh, a very deep level of um, sympathy and solidarity across the region. So, you know, I, I don't think there's any foregone conclusion that the deal of the century will be successful. Um, and in fact, the fact, the, the fact that they haven't um, actually put it forward and, and made it public, I think, is partly indicative of that. I, I do think that uh, the Palestinian uh, will to, to resist these kinds of plans uh, remain uh, very strong. Uh, in particular, most significantly, I think the, the question of the right of return of Palestinian refugees remains a, a central feature of, of, of um, uh, Palestinian political discourse, at least among, uh, at the popular level. My last question is twofold. First, in the West, what are the prospects for a substantive break from the foreign policy status quo, one that has been so deeply, as we've discussed, so deeply implicated in driving these immiserating and brutally violent realities across the Middle East? And then two, with the demands and dreams of the Arab Spring seemingly so long since crushed by the Saudi-led reaction, what are the prospects for change inside the region? In answer to the first uh, part of the question around uh, the prospects for a change or, or a break from the kind of direction of, of U.S. and other kind of Western-led policies, I, I think the key to this is actually not to be found in the uh, leaderships of, of the United States or any, any Western states. Um, it's to do. It, it, it will depend very heavily on political and social mobilization uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere that puts forward a different kind of politics. Uh, you know, as we've seen globally, there, there's increasing dissatisfaction um, with with the ways that, uh, you know, with the Trump regime uh, and, and other uh, Western governments and their policies in the region. We saw massive mobilizations at the time of the Iraq 2003 war. We are seeing, I think, um, I hope, an increasing number of voices raised against the war in Yemen. But I, I, I think that the real hope for change lies in um, popular mobilization, popular power, and, new, and a new kind of politics, uh, independent politics that can challenge both the, the Trump and Democratic Party uh, policies in, in the United States towards the region and more broadly towards within the U.S. itself. In terms of uh, the, the second part of, of your question about what's the kind of future trajectories, 
I think a lot of this is going to depend in in the region will depend upon what happens at the end once we see the cessation of hostilities in places like Syria, Libya, and Yemen. This is literally the $100 billion question, I think, uh, around uh, reconstruction and, and the ways that reconstruction uh, fit into the, the, the patterns of conflict and, and war that have preceded it. Clausewitz uh, once said that war is the continuation of politics by other means. And I think perhaps we could rephrase this to say that um, reconstruction or this phase of reconstruction is the continuation of war um, by other means. Because I think whoever is able to control the reconstruction, both in terms of its its funding and financing, um, as well as the actual contract and and, uh, the sectors that are highlighted, will have a very significant say over the political direction of the region. Uh, We saw this you know, in Lebanon after the, after the Lebanese civil war. So I think what we are seeing, and this is partly related to the, the rapprochement between um, the, the Gulf and uh, the Assad regime in, in Syria that I spoke about earlier, is the Gulf's attempt to become, at least at the regional level, the dominant player within these um, reconstruction schemes that are coming uh, forward. They're trying to position themselves um, in this way. You know, if you look at, for example, the largest kind of construction firms, uh, infrastructure uh, firms uh, regionally, these are mostly uh, uh, Gulf-owned. If you look at the financial system across the region, you'll find that Gulf banks are dominant across many countries in, in the region. If you, look at, if you look at logistics, if you look at networks, sorry, um, infrastructure networks, uh, particularly maritime ports, again, you know, the Gulf plays a really significant role. And all of these things that I, I've just spoken about, the construction, the financing, the infrastructure, the logistics, these really are the key sectors in terms of what's going to happen within this reconstruction phase. Also, if you look at the development funds and and financing of of reconstruction, the large regional um, development funds, such as the Islamic Development Bank, the Abu, Abu Dhabi Development Fund, or Fund for Development, and other Gulf-based. These are all um, these are all Gulf-based uh, firms or, or, or funders. So, I think to a large degree, uh, the Gulf is well sees itself as being well positioned in this. But of course, a lot will depend upon what are the political arrangements that follow these wars themselves. So in the case of Syria, it's, it's very clear that if the Assad regime remains in place, then you know, Iran, Russia, potentially China will play quite a significant role in, in, in shaping the direction of, of, of reconstruction. But I think in the case of Yemen, we have this kind of perverse outcome where we potentially have this perverse outcome where the Gulf has been centrally involved in destroying the country and will be centrally involved in rebuilding it in the period following the conflict. Well, Adam Hania, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Adam Hania teaches in the Development Studies Department at SOAS, University of London, and his latest book is Money, Markets, and Monarchies, The Gulf Cooperation Council, and the Political Economy of the Middle East. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, 
after remarking that capital comes dripping from head to foot, from every pore, with blood and dirt. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Thea Riofrancos is our managing editor. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And last but not least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Thank you.